Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This is the Pulse of St. Louis. The Pulse of St. Louis, I'm Shirley Washington. Tonight, we take a closer look at African-American men and stroke. Research shows stroke is the fifth leading cause of death in the U.S. and a, lead, a leading cause of disability. And get this, African-American men are at greater risk of stroke than any other group of men in the country. Joining me now, Kathy Howard, founder of the ABC Brigade, Stephen Tate, he is a stroke survivor, and Dr. Alexandra Cotter, a neurologist at Washington University. Thank you all so much for being here, I appreciate it. Stephen, let's start with you. Tell me about your situation. When did you have a stroke? 2011, I had a hemorrhagic stroke, which is a brain bleed. Uh, fortunately or unfortunately, only 13% of people live through those. So here I am and happy to be here. But I had my, <clears throat> excuse me, I had mine. Uh, I had retired uh, in July and I had my stroke in October. I just gone on my five mile walk like I always do. Um, came back home, lifted weights like I do three times a week. Went up to my kitchen, came back down, sat down, and just slid off my chair. Did you know at the time that you were I having a stroke? I had no idea what stroke was all about. <clears throat> Excuse me. I always thought it was an old people's disease. <laughs> and, of course, I was old then, but I always thought it was something that couldn't happen to me. But as I'm sliding and laying on the floor, for some reason I said to myself, I think I'm having a stroke. I have no idea where that came from. To this day, I don't. And I, fortunately, we still had the landline in our house at that time, and it was in my hand for what reason, I have no idea. And I call my wife and I go, just like I'm talking to you, hey, babe, I'm having a stroke. And she goes, you don't sound like it. I go, I, my whole left side's numb. I can't do it. I can't get up off the floor. And then, of course, she freaked out. <clears throat> and I told her, no, I'm okay, really. I'm, I'm, I'm fine. And uh, the next thing I knew, EMS was coming down my basement steps. And when they walked in, I go, hey, how you doing? <laughs> and the EMS guys go, we thought we were coming to a stroke scene, if you will. And I go, I think I had a stroke. I don't know that for sure, but you know. And my uh, blood pressure was 220 over 190. So he told me, you're lucky your heart didn't explode. But I know that I have a propensity or a, well, a propensity for high blood pressure. It runs in my family. Um, but I had the medicine there and wasn't taking it. <laughs> oh, wow. So I guess that was a contributing factor. Oh, I'm sure that was the reason. I'm pretty sure it was the reason, so. Mm -hmm. Dr. Carter, give us a sense of what exactly is a stroke and why does it happen? Sure. <clears throat> a stroke happens when a blood vessel, an artery going to the brain gets blocked or 
either ruptures and bursts and blood spills out into and onto the brain tissue. Uh, the type of stroke that you had, Mr. Tate, is mm -hmm. uh, a bleeding stroke or a hemorrhagic yes. stroke is, uh, like you said, a very dangerous type. Um, but by far the most common type is uh, the type where you have a blockage in the artery and then blood, is, blood flow is interrupted and the brain tissue sort of downstream from that area uh, starts to die because it's deprived of oxygen and nutrients. And that's by far the most common type of stroke that we, we see. So why is it that African-American men are more likely than any other group of men in the country to have a stroke? Well, that's a very uh, difficult question to answer because the uh, factors that lead to having a stroke, things like hypertension, diabetes, high cholesterol, smoking, are completely entwined with sort, uh, a lot of other social factors that affect how people live uh, every day. Um, depending, for instance, on where you live, things such as your zip code can affect your access to healthcare, your access to the medications that you need to treat your uh, risk factors for having a stroke, whether it's high blood pressure or uh, diabetes as well as the lifestyles that um, people uh, live, the health habits that, that they have. So it's really hard to tease apart uh, why it is that um, a, particular in, a particular group of people might have a higher likelihood of having stroke, but I think it's really important to, to realize that there are, um, there, there are are healthcare inequities that uh, really influence how well people do, how well people are able to take care of their, of their health. And uh, I think that African-American men, they have a lot, of, uh, a lot of obstacles that they have to overcome to be able to, to, protect, to protect their health. Yeah, good point. Go ahead, Kathy. Can I just, I, I wanna just patch on to what Dr. Carter said, accessibility in, in lifestyle even includes accessibility to good nutrition. Mm -hmm. And so very often, it's not available. And you can only eat so much mac and cheese because it's 20 cents a box. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so. So Kathy, tell me about the ABC Brigade and how it came about. Well, it came about, well actually, it came about partially because of that man over there. Um, I was in therapy and my therapist says, Dr. Carter wants to see you. And I'm like, who's Dr. Carter? And I walked into this room and he's sitting there and the first words he ever said to me is, so what are you gonna do about this stroke thing? <laughs> and I'm like, okay. And so when he because came- Because you had a stroke and you I, went therapy after. I did. Um, unlike Steve, mine was a um, ischemic stroke, which is a blood clot. And so Dr. Carter and I have been buddies, like it or not, ever since. Um, I always call him the wizard because they're just kind of on the cutting edge for me of stroke information. Mm -hmm. So what does your organization do? Well, we've grown so much in the last seven years. We started out being about education and prevention and living life after stroke. But I would say in the last three years, our passion has become reclaiming your life after stroke. And so we have programs and we do things. Um, 
my personal opinion, it's not a medical opinion, is if you go home and sit, because we do feel safer at home, but if we do that, we're really putting ourselves at risk for a second stroke. I really believe that. Yeah. So we're all about getting out there and exercise and showing people programs that are beneficial, you know, for us. Um, we have a, a program that's a coffee house for people who've lost their speech. Um, we have a chorus, again, for people who've lost their speech due to stroke, and uh, we just sang this weekend. So our newest project is we're meeting on June 9th with some young survivors in the 20s and 30s to see how we can help them. And dancing. <laughs> That's awesome. Dancing's like next. <laughs> Stephen, how has your life changed since having a stroke? Not a whole lot, actually, because I was determined not to let it change a lot. You know, I mean, I, I can't run, but I'm almost 70 years old, so I'm running too. <laughs> but initially, I was embarrassed because I walked with a limp. My speech was never slurred or anything like that, but I, I just, I guess vanity set in and I didn't want to be seen. And it took me probably uh, a couple of months to say to myself, you can't sit in a house. You gotta, I'm a social person, very social person. And I, you know, I like talking to people. I like meeting people. And my wife is the same way. So after a couple of months, it was, I told her, because I was on a walker at that time. I went home in a wheelchair, graduated to a walker, and then decided this don't look cool. <laughs> so I got a cane, and then I started walking around my backyard because it was about this time of the year where my recovery had progressed. And I just started, and then once I did that, I was, you know. They're very active in the ABC Brigade. We're yeah. very fortunate to have them. Awesome. So, Dr. Carter, Stephen said earlier that he didn't think he could have a stroke. He thought old people had strokes. Anyone can have a stroke, right? That's right. While it's true that uh, you have to think about it in terms of risk factors, and one of the risk factors for having a stroke is getting older, and that's certainly the case. Uh, but there are other risk factors that uh, can affect even younger people, and those are the things that uh, I think I, I want my patients to remember. Those risk factors are things like hypertension or high blood pressure, like Mr. Tate talked about, diabetes, high cholesterol, and smoking. Those are some of the four main risk factors that are within our control to uh, take better care of or to actually uh, eliminate. And a lot of people can do that by changing their diet, changing their health habits, working with their physician to take the right medications to control uh, those risk factors. And in fact, there has been a study that came out relatively recently that suggested that up to 80% of the strokes in the United States are really preventable if we could help people to really protect their health. And this goes back to what we were discussing before about making sure that health education, access to health care, uh, and those other things are distributed evenly throughout our population, both here in St. Louis and nationally. So you talked about controllable 
risk factors? Are there uncontrollable risk factors for stroke? Sure. Um, things that we can't do anything about are aging, uh, and so we can't control that. Uh, and if there's a family history of other people having cardiovascular disease, uh, having a history of heart attacks, heart problems, prior strokes, so if all of that runs in the family, that's nothing, you, you can't do anything about that. What you can do is protect yourself by focusing on the modifiable risk factors like we talked about. Are there cures for stroke? Or is there a cure for stroke? Well, I, I will always remember the, one of the things that my mentor, one of my mentors uh, taught me when I was doing my neurology residency is that the best stroke to treat is the one that hasn't happened yet. And the way that we do that is by educating people about risk factors like we talked about, and also uh, doing a better job of educating people about how to respond when they think that they or someone else is having a stroke. And Mr. Tate did absolutely the right thing. Even though he wasn't sure he was having a stroke, he thought that he might be. And so he picked up the phone and called 911, which is always the, the right thing to do. Um, because one very important thing that uh, I think uh, I want my patients to know is that if you think you're having a stroke, come into the hospital immediately because there are things that we can do that won't cure your stroke but can lessen the amount of damage that's being done to the brain. Time and the, is of the essence. Time, time is brain is what we say. All right, got to take a break. Stay with us. When we come back, we'll talk about warning signs, signs and symptoms you need to look for if you think someone is having a stroke or if you think you're having a stroke. Stay with us back in a moment. To hear more, listen to the podcast. Just search for The Pulse of St. Louis. Welcome back to The Pulse. Tonight, we're talking about stroke and the impact the disease has on African-American men. And, and so, Kathy, we were talking about um, in the break how a lot of people don't like talking about stroke. Do you see that? It with is. your organization? Yeah, a lot. Mm -hmm. um, one of my passions is visiting brand new survivors mm. because at that time you're hopeless. What's going on? Nothing's working and you know, there's a lot of people in your room talking about you but not to you. But I've started asking when I visit new survivors, what did you and your family know about stroke before this event? And I swear I'm in the 90th percentile for nothing. And then when you bring in the words like aphasia, or atrial fibrillation, those words, they'd never heard of them before. And I do a lot of health fairs, and I always say everybody likes to steal my candy, <laughs> but unless they've had stroke impact their life, they, they don't want to talk about it. Mm -hmm. And it's hard, and it's hard for the family too, to watch a loved one oh. who has gone through a stroke. Incredibly so, so, hard. So what is the best advice for family members in terms of assisting a loved one who's had a stroke? There's a time to hang on to us and a time to let us go. And it's probably the scariest thing that will ever, ever happen to a family. And we always say if one person in the family had a stroke, the whole family had the stroke. Um, because there's so much that changes post-stroke. Um, attitude is everything, but family members need to not hover and include the person in the conversation. Eventually, they're not going to be caregivers, they're going to be care partners, which means the survivor has to be responsible too and know what's safe and not. So it's a, it's a long process, but I think 
like Dr. Carter said, if we can start getting the word, which you help us do so well, um, talk about it before it happens, but when it happens, be open to each other, not just, oh, they've had a stroke, they don't know what they're doing, that sort of mentality. Yeah, Stephen, tell me, how supportive was your family when you had your stroke? I saw the most precious picture of you and your son, I am assuming, he was in bed with you? Yeah, he... Oh, that was he so... Had this, oh, my God. He stopped, well, mm -hmm. not stopped, well, yeah, he stopped going to school. He was mm -hmm. sophomore in high school, or junior, and he would come visit me every day, and he would make, he would grab my arm and lift it, because I couldn't, you know, but, yeah, he... He, he and my he and my wife and my daughter they they did all they they possibly could because they were hard on me they were really hard on me I tell people a little story that when I first went home I could drop a fork on the floor and everybody would converge I can fall down the steps now <laughs> <laughs> they were like, oh, and they go are you okay <laughs> so I I learned kind of from the school of hard knocks if you will but. It's gotten me, I'm just very stubborn anyway because, you know, I was given a lot of parameters of not being able to walk and not being able to lift this arm at all. And I mean, it's a lot of things and those things just fed into what I like. You know, I like challenges and this has probably been the biggest challenge of my life. Yeah, and, and you did this, you lifted that arm. Look yeah. at you. Oh, I can, <laughs> yeah, the only thing that I haven't mm -hmm. recovered are yeah, recovered from is my leg is just the neurons, I guess, haven't fired the leg up, <laughs> but everything else is, is pretty good. So what advice would you give to someone who has had a stroke and maybe in that place where you were, where they felt like, mm. A very simple phrase, don't give up or give in. You can't do it. I mean, after seven and a half years, I still see minute changes, advances, if you will. Um, when I first went home, I could see large things. I, you know, my arm would, and now, when I reach for a dish in the cabinet, I reach up there and get it. it used to be I'd reach with this hand. So it's just a matter of not giving up. You gotta stay strong and you gotta stay tough. Good point, love that. Dr. Carter, so what are some of the warning signs and symptoms that could indicate someone's having a stroke? Sure, what you really wanna look for is a sudden change in yourself or um, the person that you're looking at. And uh, very often, I like to uh, remind people of the acronym FAST, where F stands for face. Look for an asymmetry or a drooping on one side of the face. Uh, check out their arms, see if they can uh, raise both arms. And if they have weakness on, on one side that has come on all of a sudden, that could be suggesting uh, a stroke or would be concerning for a stroke. Uh, check out their speech. Are they making sense? Is their speech slurred? And are they understanding you when you're speaking to them or are they confused because they have lost the ability to understand what it is that you're saying? And then uh, T is again the, the time factor, the critical issue of picking up the phone and calling 911 if you think that you or someone else is having a stroke. 
And why does stroke cause paralysis? Why is that? Uh, uh, it, stroke can cause a lot of different types of symptoms. Paralysis is a, a very common one, and I like to use the, the phrase location, 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 <laughs> just like in real estate because the real estate of the brain that's affected is going to determine what kinds of symptoms the person has. It's not always paralysis. Sometimes people can lose some of their vision. Sometimes they lose their ability to speak or to understand. Uh, and there can be a whole slew of uh, other more subtle uh, things like uh, being unable to pay attention to one side of space. Um, and it's part of what makes uh, stroke and brain science is very interesting for me, but it also uh, emphasizes the fact that it really, uh, really has a huge impact on people's uh, everyday lives and their ability to function. So, so how do you treat a stroke? I mean, how do you treat someone who's had a stroke? Sure, when they come into the emergency room, again, we want them to come in as soon as possible. There are two main things that we can do to help people minimize the amount of brain damage they're experiencing from their stroke. The first is to give them a clot-busting drug through a vein. The drug is called TPA, and what the drug does is it helps break up any clot that is blocking the flow of blood to the brain. Now, you wouldn't want to give that in the case of a bleeding stroke like Mr. Tate has, which is why there are a whole bunch of uh, tests and procedures that are done very, very quickly as soon as the person gets to the emergency room to see if they can get the TPA medicine. Let me just go back to one of the questions that you asked originally, which is why does stroke affect uh, African-American men uh, differently or in terms of the impact on their lives? Well, it turns out that um, to give the medicine TPA, you have to get permission from the patient. And uh, a lot of, not a lot, but a significant number of people, they actually decline the medicine. And some of the reasons that I think that uh, this, this rate of refusing the medicine is higher in minority and African American communities is a certain distrust of the medical system, which is uh, predominantly a, a Caucasian or white-run uh, establishment, and, uh, and, and uh, a failure on our part as phys physicians to do a better job of educating the public. And then the other big uh, intervention that has really come to prominence in the last couple of years is our ability to now go into a blood vessel and actually mechanically pull out a clot and thereby restore blood flow to the brain. So wow. those are two of the main things that we're doing up front to minimize the, the brain damage that's being done. And we're working also really, really hard on improving the treatments that people get afterwards to help promote their rehabilitation. Because that's critical as well. Rehabilitation is yes. key, sure. And yeah. that's, that's actually uh, what I spend most of my time uh, focusing on, working with people like Mr. Tate and working with people like Kathy, trying to develop new treatments to help improve their speech, their walking, the use of their arms, and getting back to the living uh, lives that have a high, a high quality of life. And so recovery is long term? Well, we used to think that people didn't recover from strokes at all. As recently as 30 or 40 or 50 years ago, after somebody had a stroke, they were basically left in a hospital bed to fend for themselves. Now we know that that's not the way to go about things, and we know that recovery is possible. P 
people get most of their recovery after their stroke in, a, in about the first three or four months. We think that there's a, a window of opportunity there where the brain is more plastic, we say, and able to reorganize itself. And after those four months are done, then the recovery can progress, but it's a lot slower. And what we're trying to figure out is how to open and broaden and lengthen that window so that people can continue to improve from their stroke for months and years afterwards. And that would be a good thing. Got to take a break. Stay with us back in a moment. Welcome back. We are almost out of time, but Kathy, you had some interesting comments during the break about time. Yes. How critical that is. So um, we actually use the term be fast. 20% of survivors have balance and vision issues before stroke, but that T means time to get to call 911. Calling 911 is the critical piece. Very often we drive ourselves or we have a family member drive us. That's time lost. Um, calling 911, they're calling the hospital and saying we're bringing a stroke in. And St. Louis is blessed with five level one trauma centers for stroke. And when you get to the hospital, the team is waiting. All right, that's Again. good to know. I'm out of time. Sorry, okay. but thank you all so much for being here. I appreciate it. And thank you for joining us for The Pulse of St. Louis. Remember, if you missed any part of the show, download The Pulse of St. Louis podcast in the iTunes or Google Play stores.